Welcome back, folks. Good to have you with us here on the Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. On the way to our conversation here with Brian Sears, let me remind you the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by MeQ, Baltimore's Credit Union, offering a full range of financial services. MeQ, Baltimore's Credit Union, has been helping its members and its community prosper for the last 80 years. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. Remember, it's a credit union, not just a bank. Belongs to you, and money comes back in the end. More information at www.mecu.com or signershow.org is MeQ, Baltimore Credit Union's banner. We're here with Brian Sears, who is a government reporter for the Daily Record. Good to have you with us, Brian, as always. Thanks for having me, Mark. Y'all can join us here at 410-319-8888. You can email us at talk at steinershow.org. Uh, you can tweet us at Mark Steiner. What is your favorite or least favorite thing about this General Assembly? <laughs> Join us at 410-319-8888 with your thoughts and ideas. So let's go through where we are with some of this um, and what is kind of at the, t- the top of the list here. I, I, I'm curious, one broad question. Sure. D- given the, what's going on in Washington, D.C., and the fact that there may be lots of federal employees laid off and Maryland, part of our the wealth of the state of Maryland actually comes because of the, of the presence of the federal government in the state of Maryland, especially in the D.C. area, and the employees, and, and we look at changes to Medi- Med- Medicare and Medicaid that could be coming up, are there conversations going on with any seriousness about what's, what, what, what the future might bring? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I think that there are conversations, and there's a lot of, you know, I, I think maybe the word here is trepidation. Uh-huh. Um, there, are, there are a lot of uh, lawmakers, um, and, and even, you know, in the governor's office, they are, they are watching very closely to see what goes on in Annapolis. I mean, part of the, part of the problem is uh, there's very much this sort of X factor. We just don't know what, in the end, any of, you know, anything, you know, what the federal government's going to do. Um, and that will, in large part, determine how it affects Maryland. I mean, so we're you know we're seeing we're seeing some of that you know uh, you know I think there were some you know some recent some recent federal you know, federal job actions. Um, these, if, if there are significant job actions, these are probably going to proportionally hit Maryland. And as we saw, um, you know, as we saw with things you know like uh, the federal job freezes of a couple of years ago. Um, these things can have a pretty significant impact on Maryland, which is dis- disproportionately reliant on um, on federal job creation and federal income. So, but I mean, there's no at this point kind of conjecture on what they might do. I mean, the contingency plans. Uh, no, I mean because the the problem is is that you know so here one of the biggest one of the the biggest scariest um, things that that's going on. Is the discussion about what could happen um, in terms of the, the changes to the ACA and what could happen in Maryland um, if, for example, the uh, the Medicaid waiver goes away? And it's a uh, Medicaid waiver is a fairly complicated um, pro- uh, program that is, you know, I think unique to Maryland. My understanding is it's fairly unique to Maryland as opposed to other states. And we're talking about theoretically billions of dollars that could evaporate out of the state budget. Um, Without sort of knowing exactly what's going to happen, I mean, nobody knows how a you know a two point one two point three billion dollar hole gets filled. So let's talk about some of the, the other issues here. One of the things that kind of hit me was that the uh, that, that there are a lot of kind of what I call emotional political battles going on. Uh, one of those seems to be the effort to take away the governor's ability to release people who are lifers. 
where does that stand? And what is and that? That seems to me to have be like a political battle. They didn't do it to O'Malley or anybody else. Well, and and you know there are. If you talk to the governor's office, there are a number of these. Um, I think the governor's office a couple of weeks ago released a list of 30, uh, 30 bills and resolutions that they said are currently in you know currently in the pipeline that look at reducing the governor's role in in any number of situations, including the bill you just mentioned. Um, and, and that's you know that is a that parole bill is one that's still kicking around the legislature. I mean, we have twenty eight days. Until the, you know, until the end of session, um, it, it's you know at, at this point the, the the status of it and, and where that you know where the governor's role in the parole you know in the parole issue uh, will ultimately play out. I mean, it's you know, but it but it's still part of the conversation, and you know this is this is something that we've actually seen quite a little bit of, I guess, since uh, since Governor Hogan took office, and 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 again, you know, you, if you talk to them. Um, I think that they they rattle off a list of about seventy bills overall that they that they say would would have would have reduced or have reduced their power um, since they took office. Now we've covered fracking a lot here um, on the show uh, over the over the months, and so it, it it went through the house. The ban went through the house, Correct. but the but the senator in charge of the committee where the bill lives in the Senate, uh, Joan Carter Conway, uh, doesn't back a ban. She says it's impossible to. To uh, to ensure to over to, to survive a governor's veto, so it's, where where does it all stand? Why is it so difficult in the Senate? Where does it stand, and what do you think is going to happen? So, I mean, the the, the first reason, where does it stand? It, it it now goes to the Senate. So, um, the House the House has sent uh, Senator Joan Carter Conway, who is the as a Democrat from Baltimore City and the chair of the Education, Health, and Environmental Affairs Committee, um, and she you know she has been. Um, Rightly or wrongly, depending on who you talk to, blamed um, or credited for blocking any ban legislation from coming through uh, uh, from coming through the Senate. Um, I, I I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, and she called me to uh, to tell me that that in no uncertain terms had she ever blocked um, fracking ban legislation, and then told me very matter of factly that the House had never sent her a ban bill. Well, now they have. Um, I will tell you that before they sent the bill, there was a hearing. On the Senate version, in which she uh, told Bobby Zirkin, um, who sponsored the ban legislation in the Senate, she told him very matter-of-factly in an open meeting um, that that you know he could not get a ban bill passed the governor. She uh, she said 24 votes, which is the minimum number of votes you need to, to pass a bill, would not be enough. Um, she told him he needed a veto-proof majority, and her quote was, "Show me 29 votes, and you can have anything you want." Um, and I think that there's some real concern that um, that. There are there are not 29 votes um, on on a fracking ban bill, and that uh, that that will likely mean that there's going to be a you know discussion centering around the moratorium. Interestingly enough, Senator Conway has sponsored in her own committee a moratorium bill, um, and I'll leave it to uh, to you and your listeners to uh, to decide which bill you think has a better chance of getting out of her committee. <laughs> Well, judging from the past, I have a guess, but I won't venture it now. Um, it's, uh, it's also, the other issue that there was kind of a, a divide between the governor and um, and the General Assembly had to do with paid sick leave. He wanted it to only affect companies, I think, if I'm right, with 30 or more employees? It's 50, actually 50 or more employees. 50 or more employees, right. I'm sorry. And 15 is what passed. 
Correct. And, and so we had a preliminary vote in the Senate on this. Uh, we, the House has already finished up work on their bill. So we had a preliminary vote in the Senate on the Senate version of the bill, which is sponsored by uh, Senator Charles Mac Middleton. And the, the, biggest, the biggest difference in this bill um, is, is re- I mean, I think, you know, the, first of all, you take a look at the bill that, got, that passed on a preliminary vote. None of these, none of these uh, votes really amounted to a veto-proof majority. Um, I think the closest, you need 29 in the Senate. Um, I think the closest we got on one of the, on defeating one of the amendments was 27. The biggest, the biggest difference in the bill is the House passed a bill that has seven days of sick leave in it. Um, the Senate version has five. Um, that's that's going to be a fairly big discussion point. Luke Clippinger, who's the sponsor of the House bill, said that he wasn't sure whether or not five was something they could support, although he didn't say it was something that they wouldn't necessarily support. Um, the, the, House, the House version did pass with a veto-proof majority, but again, um, you need two chambers to be able to override a veto. And if the Senate on the final vote on this can't get to 29, that could leave the door open theoretically. And I've been, I, I think we've been talking about this since December. That leaves the door open for Hogan to veto this bill, um, while still claiming that he's actually for the issue of sick leave by simply saying, hey, look, I put in a bill that, that was a more moderate approach, would have protected more small businesses, um, you know, would, would have covered some people and encouraged bi- smaller businesses as they could to cover people, um, but, this, but this goes too far. And so you know, he theor- politically would simultaneously be able to be for the issue and against the issue at the same time. So tell me, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective. What, 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 what are the what are the major things we're missing here in the in the in the general assembly? You think that are really, really kind of earth shaking things happening? Anything? Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's funny. I mean, it's you, typically speaking. So, Mark, this is my 16th session down here. You know, really? That's right. I yeah, forgot. Hard, this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hard to be- hard to believe, isn't it? It is. Um, <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's 16 um, 16 not including special sessions. And typically what we expect from the third year of the term is, is that this is the year where it's really busy and very political. And, and I got to tell you, like, it, it, we, we keep looking at, you know, I'm looking at the calendar and saying, okay, it's 28 days. Like we've got the budget coming up here. You know, we've got the, uh, you know, we've got some, some pretty significant deadlines for when committees have to report bills out in order for them to get, you know, to get across the hall um, to the opposite chamber. And, you know, and it's been, I mean, with the exception of a few of these larger bills like, you know, fracking and paid sick leave and things like that, I mean, it's, it's not that they're not doing anything, but it really has not sort of been the – it's been an atypical third year of the term. So what, what – uh, and, and so, I mean, what do you, what do you attribute that to? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've asked people that. Um, I will tell you, I mean, Donald Trump's name comes up a lot. Um, if, you look at, if you look at the legislative agenda – for um, the presiding officers, um, last year was a much was a much meatier agenda. This year was really a package of five bills and resolutions that the two presiding officers, uh, Bush and Miller, could agree on, and really they all pertained to issues related to setting up task for, task forces to watch um, federal actions or expanding the attorney general's powers so that he could sue the, so that he could sue the federal government. Um, so a lot of this, you know, maybe that, maybe it's, uh, for lack of a better term, maybe it's Trump malaise. <laughs> so now what, one of the things that, that um, I think did not pass, if I'm correct, but has been a very emotional bill in the past, has been death with dignity. 
Yeah, and that bill, you know, this is uh, not the first time it's been up. This is a, and and not even recently. So this is the third year in a row um, that we've had it recently. But this bill, I think, or or you know, bills that are similar to this actually date back a number of years. Um, and the uh, the sponsors of the death with dignity bill have withdrawn um, withdrawn the bill again because they don't have support in the House or the Senate. This was the same reason why this bill. Um, was withdrawn last year. Um, so, so really, there has been very little political movement on on this bill. Will it ever? I mean, what the opposition I know comes from the Catholic Church and some other places, but there seems to be a lot of kind of push from people who really believe this should be the law of the land that people should be able to kind of choose if they're really terminally ill when they want to die. Um, I mean, look, never say never. Um, you know, but I will tell you that. Um, you know, so first of all, historically, Maryland is a very Catholic state, and and I think you have to you have to consider that um, as you look at legislation like this. The other thing is is that I think there are only five states that have legislation like this, or five states and and the District of Columbia. Right. Um, so you're not talking about a predominance. Uh, you know, I mean, if you're actually looking at it, the argument is is that more more states than not are you know not doing this, and and so I just. I don't want to. I don't want to tell you never, but you just don't. When you're down here in this bubble down here, Mark, you don't. You don't get the sense that there is any sort of a coalescence behind this issue um, that could get it done. I mean, it, it, it may be a it may be a sloppy analogy, but you know the the year that they passed the uh, the, the the increase on minimum wage to ten ten. Um, reporters who came in here and were down here. I mean, that is that's a fairly controversial business issue. And you knew it was going to be hard fought, but just being down here, you could feel the movement and and the weight being put behind it, um, and you knew that that bill that bill was going to move, even if you didn't know how you know ultimately what the final plan was going to look like. Um, you you knew it was going to move, and you just don't get that feeling when you know when you uh, look at the death with dignity bill, um, even though it is a very emotional issue and people who believe in it and, and support it, you know do so um, very passionately. So here we're in the midst of, 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 of the, the Kerman Commission. Um, we, we clearly don't know what's going to happen with that just yet. We'll find out when the reports come out, I think, in December. Uh, you have Baltimore City with a $130 million deficit uh, in their Baltimore City school budget. You've got places like Montgomery County, a wealthy county, saying that they, they are bur- bursting at the seams as well. So what what about these kind of give and take down there? I mean, they, we we've heard what the mayor said here about um, the package of one hundred eighty million dollars over three years, which clearly will not address the very critical issues the city schools face. So what are the conversations taking place that you're aware of? So you know, some of this is, some of this happened. Everything happens within it. You know, when it's time. Um, I, I feel like it's I feel like it's one of those old wine commercials. You know, we we won't sell wine before it's time. And and you know so part of, so some of this is long game and some of this is short game. Um, the short game here is is that they are going to look at um, issues related to Baltimore City school funding. Um, some of these things are going to have to be addressed um, in the short run. I mean that the city's got a budget deficit now, um, as as is to be expected. Um, Larry Hogan wants some kind of accountability. I mean, if you anybody who's been down here for any period of time since Governor Hogan was sworn in has, has heard the governor talk about wanting accountability um, on all levels of government. 
Um, it's, it's something that is a really common discussion point at Board of Public Works meetings when he brings his own agencies in front of him. And I don't think, you know, we got clear indication last week during a press conference that the governor, the governor isn't just going to write a blank check. Um, he's, he's almost said as much, and essentially he wants some kind of, some kind of standards, uh, you know, whether that includes an audit or a review board or something to make sure that the school system is not constantly sort of, you know, sort of running in the red here. Um, I mean, because, you know, it, we, we talk about these things almost annually when it comes to Baltimore City, and so it, there, is, there is a point at which, you know, I, I think that there are some folks down here who want to know if there's something systemic going on. Longer game, um, you're talking about the Kerwin Commission. I mean, we've heard some pretty, some pretty outrageous numbers. I had one source in the Senate who said that, you know, a first pass at the report that looked at funding was talking about a six, a potentially a $6 billion fiscal note on this once things were fully implemented. Um, to give you some perspective, the original Thornton plan, when fully implemented over the course of, I believe it was, a, was six to eight years, was $1.3 billion. So, I mean, you're talking, you're talking about what, you know, the, almost a five-fold increase, four-fold increase. Um, it's, you know, it's it's significant if it came in at six billion. There were a lot of people who don't, you know, who told me pretty quickly that they don't think in the end it's that it's going to look like that. But six billion dollars is is a significant amount of money. I mean, the state already kicks in almost it's five point six billion dollars in direct state aid to school systems around the state. It would be almost a doubling of state aid um, over an as yet undetermined period of time. <coughs> I think that's going to be the issues that's going to affect. I mean, it's going to be one of the big issues in the next couple of years. Can be given. It's not just Baltimore City, and Baltimore City can argue that you know that it it has had audits and actually received less money, not more money, in the last several years, which is part of the deficit. But the, all those arguments notwithstanding, that that we see um, that that when other school systems around the state are saying what they need, you look at Montgomery County, three thousand more students a year coming in. They're saying many of them ESL kids. So this could this will be an issue. This this is going to be, and given that plus. <laughs> the, the, the the revenue uh, projections for the next couple of years are not good. I mean, this this so it's gonna be this is gonna be. I don't think they're really facing it this year, but it seems to me that the that the fiscal abyss is right around the corner. Oh, absolutely, and every you know, and everybody is aware of it. And 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 I will tell you, I mean, you know, part of part of the city's problem, um, and you mentioned that they've had audits, um, and and that you know, they they have a funding. They do have a funding issue, and some of that. You know, is being driven by this double whammy that they've been they've been hit with um, in the fu- that's in the funding formula that was created for local school system aid, and part of that is dependent on on local school on, on local jurisdictional wealth, which the city takes a hit on. Um, you know, and due to some part um, because of because of these uh, these redevelopment and TIF programs that have been offered in this you know offered in the city, um, which have you know increased the size of, you know, increase the amount of the underlying property tax base in Baltimore City, even if it's not sort of directly increasing the property tax revenue directly. Um, but they've also seen reductions in student enrollment, which is the other half of that. And so when you see both of those, go, you know, when you see both of those moving in, in ways that negatively affect the funding, um, the city school system gets pinched, and, you know, this time uh, to the tune of about $129 million, I think. 
Well, Brian Sears, <clears throat> it's always a pleasure to have you on the air with us. You have a, a font of knowledge of what's happening in Annapolis. Government reporter for The Daily Record. Brian, thank you so much once again. Thanks so much, Mark. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about bail reform in Annapolis. Stay with us. Don't go away. <laughs> 